mercy and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Make joyful noise to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds among people. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, your Son, Jesus Christ, fed the hungry with the bread of his life and the word of his kingdom. Be present with us now, we pray. Renew your people with your heavenly grace, and in all our weakness, sustain us by your true and living bread, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 101, Come Thou Almighty King. This is the message we have heard from the Apostle and is declared to you today. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. Let us confess our sin together with the prayer printed in the bulletin. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, 
We confess our manifold sins and wickedness, which we most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous to us. The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Forgive us all that is past and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. People of God, hear the good news. The saying is sure and worthy of universal acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you, Christian people, were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I declare to you that all those who have faith in him and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. And this is the good news of the gospel we say together, praise be to God. Saints of the living God, Jesus Christ is the one who is designated Lord. He is the one who receives that title in the absolute, full, complete uh, universal sense. He is the Lord, and we read this. Uh, the scripture testifies to this. It says, God has ex- exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, and that name is Lord. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's, it's very much embedded in our confessions, Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Westminster Confession, and so on. That is a very, very basic, important Uh, Christian confession. We confess that he's the Lord over all of life. He's not just Lord over part of it. And that's why the efforts in our society to try to push Christianity off to the side or tell us to just keep our religion to ourselves don't understand what it means to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. He's Lord over all of life. He's the Lord over the demons and disease and uncleanness and nature. We see all of that in the Gospels. He victoriously defeats our sin. He is the Lord of the Sabbath and the law. He's the Lord over us, human beings. We confess that he's Lord. Uh, When we confess that he's Lord, we confess that he's the Lord of history and governments, all rulers, any kind of power and authority in this world. He's the Lord over politics and economics. He's the Lord over recreation and study the Lord of medicine and education, the Lord of marriage and celibacy, the Lord of wealth and culture, and on and on and on it could go. He's the Lord over all things. We make this confession verbally, but we also have to practice this confession. And I remember when I was growing up, there was a big deal about um, uh, somehow being a Christian who could separate Jesus as my Savior but not my Lord. That, That was what some people thought that they could do, or at least they talked that way, that, that that was a problem in Christianity. And and it certainly can be that we don't live according to our confession, but we can't separate the Savior from the Lord, from being Lord. He's, he's both one, uh, both of them, one at the same time. And so he, as our Savior, he is our Lord, and we bow to him and are to follow him. We confess that, we believe that, and we uh, seek to do that every moment of our lives. We don't always do that, so we confess our sin as we 
uh, did this morning, but we are always to be seeking to live according to his lordship, which will run counter to our own personal desires as they're affected by our sin. It'll run counter to what's going on in our society, not in everything, but in many things. It runs counter to uh, all, all kinds of uh, issues that we find in our society. So we need to remember we confess Jesus as Lord, and we are to live as he is Lord, and that will require sacrifice. Let us be sure that we seek to follow our Lord and to live according to that confession. We seek to do all things according to him and for him. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 348, Jesus with thy church abide.
Let us bow our heads in prayer, worship, petitioning our Father for the things we need and this world needs. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, who by your holy apostles has taught us to make prayers and supplications for all people, our Lord himself has taught us to do this. We now humbly ask you mercifully to receive these our prayers that we offer up to you to you as our holy and almighty God, asking you to inspire continually the whole church with the Spirit who gives us faith and unity and peace, and grant that all those who confess your holy name may agree in the truth of your holy word and live in unity and godly love. Hear our prayers, O Lord, for the church, that it would be bound together in Christ by your Spirit. We call out to you to lead all nations in your way of righteousness, justice, and peace, and so to direct all governments and rulers that under them Christ's people may be free to worship you and proclaim the gospel, but also that good order would be maintained for this society. Guide Joe Biden, our president, Gary Peters and Dabby Stabenow, our senators, the courts, Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, all who serve in our government, Pray you would guide them and, and uh, lead them to make good decisions and uh, be able to work together. We also pray for the Supreme Court that it would truly and par- impartially administer justice for the punishment of wickedness and vice, for the maintenance of goodness and virtue. We pray there would be an improved social order because of these judgments. We also pray for relief from the forest fires that uh, these would come to a quick end. We also pray for the termination of abortion, the illegality of pornography, the restraint of greed, the honor of marriage. We pray for help for the poor, for housing and food. We pray for the prosecution of violence, that those who commit crimes and those who are afflicted by crime can both be helped. We pray for the end of prejudice in our country. For these things and others, hear our prayers, O Lord. Guide and prosper, we pray you, those who are laboring for the spread of the gospel among the nations. Enlighten all places with Christian knowledge so that people everywhere may be filled with your truth. Hear our prayers for our missionaries, Hiro Hakobor and the church in Ukraine, we pray that that war would, would stop and that Russia would, would pull away. We also ask that you keep the church and the Christians there and, and the people at large safe and um, that there would be uh, an end to the violence. We also pray for Ben Westerveld in Quebec and the Christians in Canada as well as in Mexico, churches in the Middle East where there is uh, often a lot of uh, violence that erupts. We especially pray that you would stop the spread of terrorism terrorism in this world. Hear our prayers, O Lord, for the nations of this world. Convert the lost, make rebels fall on their knees and praise your name. We thank you that you have, have turned our hearts to you. We pray you would do the same for others who continue to strive against you. 
Turn the hearts of the wicked to you. We bring our petitions to you for those among our families and acquaintances who do not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hear our prayers for them. Merciful Father, give to all your people your heavenly grace, especially to this congregation present here, so that with humble heart and proper reverence they may hear and receive your word and truly serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of their lives. Comfort, strengthen, and help all of your people who are in trouble, sorrow, sickness, adversity, or in need. Bless them and preserve them, O God. Here are prayers for Eduardo and Luca, for Don, for Fawn and Jeff, for Frida, and our friends Becky, Phil, Dominic, Tammy's family, Tom, Bob, Chris, Angie, Karen, Vicki, and others we name to you in silence. You are our help in time of need. You are the source of all of our strength and healing. We humbly ask you to behold and visit and relieve your servants. Look upon them with the eyes of your mercy. Comfort them with a sense of your goodness. Preserve them from the temptations of the enemy. And give them patience under, the, under their affliction. In your good time, restore them to health. Give to them what they need and enable them always to live their lives in reverence of your name. And at the end of their days, may you hold them up and keep them firmly in Christ, even if they are not aware of that. Continue to bless Providence Church with the ministry of Christ. We pray for more and more people to be joined with us in faithful worship of you and loving service together. And now, O Lord, we give our thanks and praise for all your holy people who through their various places in life have been witnesses to your grace in the world. We pray rejoicing in their fellowship and following their good examples. May we be partakers with them of your heavenly kingdom. Hear our prayers that we make by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
Please be seated, and we join now in praying for God's illumination on our reading this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Your word is truth, your word is life to us, and we thank you for giving it to us. And we ask now that uh, your spirit uh, would be with us, would open our ears, open our minds, and open our hearts to understand and believe what we read, and um, that you would uh, use your word uh, to renew uh, a vigorous uh, faith in us. Uh, Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 7. Verses 1 through 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a, of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up one among them, another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out of from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if I have repaid my friend with evil, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and lay my glory in the dust. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. The Lord judges the peoples. And according to the integrity that is in me. And may you establish the righteous. O righteous God, who saves the upright in heart, and a God who feels indignation every day. Our epistle reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First uh, Thessalonians two, chapter uh, sorry, chapter two, verses nine through twelve. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Finally, our gospel reading comes from the gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves." Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. 
Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The word of the Lord. We must not get the cart before the horse when we listen to Daniel chapter 7, this first part of Daniel chapter 7. It's a strange chapter that takes us into the second half of the book of Daniel. The imagery is fascinatingly strange, and it has often been picked apart before it really has sunk into us. Like impatient children, we want to jump to the interpretation and breeze past the figures themselves in Daniel's vision. But Daniel chapter 7 is not some kind of allegorical code that speaks of things that we could just as well speak of directly, like it's sort of irrelevant, the characters and the figures in it. We cannot ignore the characters, not if we truly want to listen to Daniel. God's word wants to pull us in, make us walk around in it, instead of rushing into our rationalistic, deconstructing ideas. The scripture text is a bit like the wardrobe in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've read this set. It's a uh, children's story, but it has a lot to say to adults and some uh, wonderful, fabulous images in it. The uh, Pavinzi children, they were the the children, the main children in the story, the the first book. The Pavinzi children want to stay with a friend, uh, went to stay with a friend of the family in his country estate during the war. And they decided to explore the large house full of twists and turns and surprises. They found one room in this huge mansion that was completely empty except for an enormous wardrobe in the corner. Well, the children peeked inside the room and then they moved on to other rooms, all except Lucy. She decided to look inside the wardrobe. The door opened and she stepped inside to find a snowy wood at the back of the wardrobe. And it turns out it was the land of Narnia, and then the story goes on from there. And this is what Daniel does for us. It brings us into a place with strange animals, a throne room, and one like a son of man. Narnia is not some other world in some other galaxy far, far away. It lies behind this mundane world we live in. And Daniel's vision is like the wardrobe. It takes us behind the world we live in, but not far, far away. Let us now enter into Daniel's vision in chapter 7 and be impacted by the animals in the ancient of days in the anointed sun. And if you do that, you will, be, you will find that you really have not left this world at all. Now, there are four animals, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and one that is called a beast. And right away, we might think of a zoo. Most, if not all of us, have been to zoos, or we've watched videos of lions and bears and leopards, and that is part of the problem with zoos and videos. They keep you away from the animals. 
If you were to run into a lion or a bear or a leopard or some strange beast out on a walk, what, how would you respond? Well, a few years ago, there was a news report of two mountain bikers on a trail in Glacier National Park in Montana. They were rolling along the trail when all of a sudden there was a grizzly bear right in front of them. The bear roared and attacked one of the bikers, knocking him to the ground. And then the bear opened its mouth and clamped its teeth on the man's head with the bicycle helmet still on. The other biker was carrying a can of bear repellent, and he jumped on the bear, really incredible, jumped on the bear and unloaded the entire can of repellent onto the bear's face. The bear was dazed and let go of the man he had caught, and then the bear lumbered away into the forest probably wiping his face as he went. Now, if you had had an encounter like that with one of the animals mentioned in Daniel, you would have a very different response to them if, uh, than if you saw them in a zoo. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and the beast are each fierce and dangerous. The character of these animals is ferocity and strength. They are far more powerful than our pets. Most dogs would be destroyed in a moment by a lion, a bear, a leopard, and the beast. In Daniel, these are not cute, fuzzy creatures that you want to pet. They are strong and destructive. They are predators with voracious appetites. And these animals provoke fear. Animals like these are often used by the prophets in the Old Testament to tell the story of dangerous power such as in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 6, which talks about Israel being attacked by a lion, a wolf, and a leopard. In this case, it was because of Israel's sin. Jeremiah says, Therefore a lion from the forest shall slay them, a wolf from the desert will destroy them, a leopard is watching against their cities, everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces. And it's the same in the Psalms, like Psalm 22, which talks about suffering because of the wicked. And says, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And then our psalm, Psalm 7, this morning characterizes, the psalmist characterizes his enemies as a lion who might tear him apart. Animals like the ones in Daniel 7 are also used in Jewish literature outside of the Bible. It's not in our Bible, but there's a Jewish writing called First Enoch, and it's full of uh, images, and many of the images are like these animals in our text. In, the writing, in that writing, Enoch has a vision about a flock of sheep neglected by their shepherds and being attacked by dogs, eagles, and kites. If I wasn't a birder, I wouldn't know what a kite was. Linda knows what a kite is. Um, I've seen a couple of them, but they're, they're a hunting bird. They're like a small hawk is kind of what they're like. But they're a bird that goes after things to, to, to eat as well. Ferocious animals were, uh, de- are depicted in these Jewish writings, and then they're also depicted in writings of other people um, beyond the Jews. In Daniel 7, these animals are strange hybrids. A lion with eagle's wings, a leopard with four wings and four heads, a beast with horns. In other parts of the Old Testament, there are also strange hybrid animals. This isn't just something unique to Daniel 7. The book of Ezekiel opens with four living creatures that have the form of a man, but four faces. One like the face of a man, but the other faces are those of a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And they also had four wings and straight legs with calves' feet. It's, it's a bizarre 
uh, kind of creature. And Ezekiel talks about uh, those, those hybrid animals. Well, Daniel 7 has uh, hybrid animals in it as well. The animals in Daniel 7 are also partly human. So they're not just a mix of animal parts. They're also partly human. The lion, in verse 4, loses its eagle wings, and it's made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. The leopard, in verse 6, is given authority in the world, which is like kings. And the terrifying beast, in verse 8, has a horn with eyes like the eyes of a man. But there's something important to realize in the description of the animals. They're only partly human. There is still much about them that is bestial and animalistic. The animals in Daniel's dream are not fully human. In Daniel's dream, the four animals arise out of the sea. Verses 2 through 3, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. Well, the sea is wild and stormy and chaotic, and the scripture, uh, that's how it is, is usually presented in scripture. It's a place that's wild, stormy, and chaotic. Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's language in the play King Lear fits it very well here. Blow winds until your cheeks crack, rage on storm, you whirlwinds and tornadoes, pour out water until you've drenched the steeples of our churches and drowned their weather vanes. You sulfurous and deadly lightning, herald of the mighty thunderbolts that split oak trees, singe the white hair of my head. And you, thunder that shakes everything, crush the spherical world flat and crack open the molds from which nature forms humans and spill all the seeds that grow up to become ungrateful humankind. It's quite a way. Shakespeare had a great way with words. Well, that's like this stormy sea. It's the kind of storm that you see in the sea in Daniel 7. And the animals arise out of it. In Daniel's dream, the strange, ferocious, dangerous, hybrid animals arise out of the chaotic sea. Now, the Jews, after the exile, had to face rulers and nations like the animals in Daniel 7. These powers rose up out of the chaos in those years when Babylon was collapsing and Persia was on the rise and Greece began to grow in power. Each kingdom was ferocious and it wanted to gobble up more territory. The Jews were weak. They were coming out of exile. They had been sacked and plundered and lost uh, much of what they had known as a civilization in um, that part of the world. They were trying to rebuild Jerusalem and their cities. Their focus was on their temple and constructing a new one. And they didn't have a king, at least not a human king, with a well-trained army and large stockpile of weapons. The Jews were caught in the raging storm out of which arose the dangerous powers around them. And these rulers and kingdoms were only partly human. They were human in some ways, but animalistic in others. And that is very evident with their authority. Authority and rule is something given God gives to humans. That is something that is a special designation for humans. In the, in the foundational story of creation in the first chapter of Genesis, God created the first human pair, the man and the woman, and declared, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, authority, 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So that is something that God gives to humans. That's, that's something that, that makes us humans, to have that kind of authority. But the rulers and kingdoms in the period after the exile of the Jews exercised their authority in some terrifyingly animalistic ways. Brutal force was used on those who rebelled or refused to submit to the kings or who they conquered, such as in the stories of the fiery furnace and the lion's den and Daniel. You know, those can become these kind of fun little stories that we hear growing up and we, we, we get excited because of how the uh, Hebrews are delivered from those places. But if you, you think about it for a minute, those are some horrible things to do to somebody. These rulers and these governments thought of some horrendous ways of controlling people. And sometimes they showed compassion and mercy, which are human qualities. But other times they exhibited animalistic savagery, like when the Greek king Alexander the Great besieged the city of Tyre. Tyre and Sidon were north of Jerusalem, up the coast. And that he, when he besieged the city, he conquered the city. It took him a while, and he was ticked off, to put it slightly, put it mildly, and he crucified 2,000 of its inhabitants for not surrendering to him when he demanded. And actually, they were having a religious festival at that time, and they believed that it would have been desecrating to have these Greeks come into their city, so they kept the city closed off and said, we'll open up when we're done. Well, that wasn't good enough for Alexander the Great, so he besieged the city, and so many months afterwards, when he broke through, he crucified 2,000 of its inhabitants. And we're not talking just men. What do animals do with their prey? Well, they wound and kill, they rip and tear, and they devour. And they chase away anything that appears to be a rival. The rulers of the authorities of the Babylonians, Persians, and Greeks showed some humaneness in their, or humanness in their rule, but they were also animalistic, hybrid. Ruler after ruler, government after government, showed themselves to be partly human. It wasn't just back in those days of Daniel. They have authority, governments and rulers have authority that humans have. It's given by God. In many ways, they enact policies and show personal care for people in need. For example, after a natural disaster, the federal government sends teams of aid workers to assess the damage and designate resources to help. And we've heard about this, or we've, we've been um, hearing about the tornadoes and the damage in the south, and particularly Perry, Perryton, I think it is, Perryton, Texas, last month. Reporters talked to the mayor, Carrie Simmons, who knows the people by name who were hurt and killed. He's their mayor. It's not a big town. I think it's in the panhandle of Texas. He knows the people. He knows the businesses that were destroyed. And when he was interviewed, I saw the interview, he was, he was just very, very compassionate, cared, obviously, for his community. He spoke of his neighbors banding together to help each other and rebuild. See, there's human compassion and mercy and protection and love in that. When someone is assaulted and the government sends its law enforcement, whether it's local, state, or federal, after the perpetrator, there is justice in that, and that's being human. Rulers and governments can express these human qualities. However, rulers and governments can also be less than human, such as turning people into numbers and data and categories. 
The more distant the level of government is to you, the more you are identified by your social security number, your ethnicity, or as a statistic. And it's all part of managing millions of people, but who you are as a person gets lost in it. Or treating people like machines who must have a certain productivity, like they do at Amazon fulfillment centers. Or defining people as computers who can be reprogrammed. The Catholic Church has a social policy, and it has a a very uh, well-crafted social policy that it's developed over its many centuries of of, uh, reflection and work. And it has a good statement on this. It says, Human life is sacred, and the dignity of the human person is the foundation of a moral vision for society. This belief is the foundation of all the principles of our social, social teaching. We believe that every person is precious, that people are more important than things, and that the measure of every institution is whether it threatens or enhances the life and dignity of the human person. The more government is removed from people, the easier it is to become inhuman. And that's why government tends to be better for people the more local it is. Every governing authority in this world is a hybrid of human uh, being human and animalistic. God's people, let alone other people, but just focusing on us for a minute, must live under hybrid human and animalistic rulers and governments today. Sometimes it's with official policies, and sometimes the authorities directly exercise their power against churches and Christians. In Indore, India, in December of 2021, the Christians there, there were Christians in a church, and they were singing a hymn. You picture ourselves in church worship, singing a hymn when a mob kicked in the door. A swarm of men dressed in saffron poured inside. They jumped on stage and shouted Hindu supremacist slogans. They punched pastors, the pastors in the head. They threw women to the ground, and they sent terrified children scuttling under their chairs. They kept beating us, pulling our, out our hair, said Manish David, one of the pastors who was assaulted. They yelled, what are you doing here? What songs are you singing? What are you trying to do? The attack unfolded on the morning of January 26 at the Sat Prakashan Sankar Kendra Christian Center in the city of Indore. And the police soon arrived, but the officers did not touch the aggressors. Instead, they arrested and jailed the pastors and other church elders who were still dizzy from getting punched in the head. The Christians were charged with breaking a newly enforced law that targets religious conversions, one that mirrors at least a dozen other measures across the country that have prompted a surge in mob violence against Indian Christians. In Canada, the government has created a law that punishes Christians and churches that speak against homosexual uh, behavior and transgender ideology. Last year, the Canadian government enacted a law called C4, C and then hyphen 4, the number 4, that outlaws so-called conversion therapy. And then it defines what conversion therapy is in that law. It's any counseling or advising against transgender or non-binary identity or non-heterosexual sexuality, even if the young person or adult wants it. Some pastors have been arrested for violating this law because they have publicly declared the historic Christian teaching on homosexuality and men and women. 
So we Christians, as well as everyone in the world, have to live with governments that are going to be a mix, a hybrid of human and animalistic, maybe not always at the same time and in the same way. Daniel's vision tells us that besides the partly human, ferocious, dangerous rulers and governments, there is God. Modern society has imagined a buffer in this world that tries to keep God out of it. Ever since the Enlightenment, there's this sort of this idea, there's, there's a buffer. We sort of, in our thinking, buffer our society from God. That we must handle things ourselves in this world. And it's all up to us. And modern people are confident that they're up to the challenge, even though the hybrid rulers and governments continue on. Well, Daniel's vision shows us something else that's behind the ferocious lion, bear, leopard, and beast, and that's the Ancient of Days, capital A, capital D. Uh, Verse 9 says, as I looked, Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days is, is God, the sovereign Lord. King Darius, in the chapter right before this, confessed, he's the living God, enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. There is no buffer that keeps God out of our world. We can imagine a buffer, but there is no buffer. In fact, in Daniel's vision, the Lord is taking his seat as judge. And this is not the final judgment set for some time in our future, at the end of history. That's not what this is. The Lord is seated in judgment now. And who is he judging? Well, here in, in, our, in this story in Daniel, he's judging the hybrid animals. He's judging the rulers and the governments. God judged Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And this has been an enormous comfort to Christians and the church through the ages. God does not ignore or stare blankly at the governing authorities of this world. He judges them and puts an end to them. God does not allow bestial governments to continue. Daniel's already told us about the fall of the house of Belshazzar in Babylon. The Persian government also fell. So did the Greek governments and the Roman. A secular society tries to buffer God out of it. The fall of partly human governments is, they say, for natural reasons. But that's not what Scripture says. The partly human, partly animalistic governments fall because God judges them and puts an end to them. Nor has God stopped judging judging the governing authorities. It's not like this is just something that happened in Daniel's day. This is is in Scripture to to encourage us and to teach us uh, the church all through the ages. God has not stopped judging the governing authorities. There is mystery in this. God's judgment cannot be dissected by us. We might wonder why God does not act sooner to put an end to animalistic governments like in North Korea. And we don't have answers. I I can't give you all the answers to these questions. But just because we don't have all the answers does not eliminate God's judgment. It doesn't remove the throne in the midst of the nations. We can see after the fact that God judged the bestial government of Pol Pot in Cambodia and stopped it. God judged and put an end to the animalistic government of Idi Amin in Uganda. God judged the hybrid governments of Saddam Hussein in Iraq and the military juntas in Argentina that committed many inhuman acts against the people. 
And I'm not saying that uh, those who were involved in the wars and putting an end to these um, are necessarily right in all their motives and things. But behind it all, remember, behind it all is God seated on his throne who brings an end to the animalistic governments. God is judging the governments, and if they become dangerous and ferocious, he will take them down. God's judgment gives us courage in this world. Daniel's vision shows us something else behind the governments and rulers of this world, and that is one like a son of man. Verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. he's, He's God's anointed ruler. That's this figure. And he's not like the hybrid animals. You see, the one like a son of man does not come out of the stormy, chaotic sea. Did you see where he came from? He has a different origin. He comes out of heaven. And he's fully human. That's to say he's not a hybrid. He's not part animal and part human. God's anointed ruler is completely human. It's humanity in all its completeness, maturity, and fullness. It's humanity in all its nobility and greatness as God intended us to be. He is a son of man. And there's nothing subhuman or bestial about him or his rule. Now, with the gospel, we know that Jesus Christ is one like a son of man. In Mark 13, Jesus talks about the end and his second coming, and he refers to himself as the son of man. He says, and, when they, and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And Jesus is making a direct reference to the one like a son of man in Daniel chapter 7 and applies it to himself. Yet the kingdom of God begins with Jesus' first coming. It's not like it just suddenly comes at the end, but it's begun. And we learn that in the Gospels as well. Jesus announces that his kingdom has begun in this world, such as in uh, Mark chapter 1. In our Gospel lesson this morning, Jesus sends his disciples out into the world to say that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And it's not like like a, a speeding car that veers away at the last minute. No, it's come near and it's here. Jesus has already begun his rule in this world. His kingdom is from heaven, and it's fully human. It's not a hybrid, and he is the king of his his kingdom. We're accustomed to hybrid rulers and governments in this world that are partly human, partly animalistic. That's what we've lived with all along. So what does fully human rule look like? Well, the book of Daniel shows us that the rule of God is wise and just and benevolent. And there are several stories about Daniel receiving wisdom from God to benefit the king and his rule, such as when Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream and tells him to stop his sins by practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the oppressed. So there's wisdom that's, that's part of, of this, this fully human rule. Or, uh, or our own humanness is incomplete because of that we can miss what human rule is. You see, we're got that hybrid mix in ourselves. So we can miss what human rule is. Well, how do we learn this? How do we know what what human rule is in a world that doesn't seem to have it? We learn God's rule 
by following Jesus Christ. We follow Jesus as we gather around his word with the church, and from him, with his word, we learn the wisdom of God's kingdom. It won't happen instantly. It comes from hearing the scriptures preached and taught and and talked about in the church. But in that, we learn the wisdom of God's kingdom. Following Jesus, we learn the justice of God's kingdom. And from Jesus, we understand what the benevolence of God's kingdom is. These are not just neutral categories. They have definite meaning within uh, coming from the word of God um, and and found uh, completely in Jesus. So as we grow and become more completely human with the wisdom and justice and benevolence of Jesus' rule, we'll then know the difference between when our rulers and government are being animalistic and when they're being human. So we have to know what it is, but as we learn what it is, then we can know the difference. Then we can speak out and support that which is like the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is what Telemachus did in the 5th 5th century Rome. There's a Telemachus who's the son of Odysseus, not that Telemachus. This is a different one. He was a Christian, and he uh, traveled into into, um, the Roman Empire, traveled uh, traveled over to Rome in the 5th century. And I remember first reading the story in Philip Schaff, who's a church historian back in the 19th century as a several volumes of church history, and it was a captivating story. Telemachus came to Rome from the east, and he went to a stadium, or we might say a coliseum, but there were lots of coliseums around the Roman Empire, not just in Rome. So he went to one of the stadiums. They were places in the cities of the Roman Empire where bloody spectacles took place, not just bloody spectacles. They had a lot of different kind of productions, but often they were bloody like sending people in with wild animals to be killed, or the gladiatorial games, the gladiators fighting to the death. The events at the stadiums were very popular, and Telemachus went to see what they were all about. And it turned out that that particular day he went, there was a gladiator contest going on, and it was gruesome and cruel. When Telemachus saw it, he went down into the arena and tried to stop the fight. The crowd turned on him, and he was stoned to death. However, the Roman emperor, Honorius, was so impressed by Telemachus's martyrdom that he issued a decree ending all gladiatorial games, and that was at the beginning of the 5th century. Because the throne of God with Christ is in place among the nations, we Christians can act with courage, stand up, and speak out when governments in our society are dehumanizing and animalistic. And God blesses that. And there can be changes that happen to the governments and to the societies. Let us pray. Grant, O merciful God, that we, your people, and the whole church, being gathered together around Christ, may show forth his rule and kingdom among all peoples, To the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let us stand and confess our faith with the Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, and is incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory, both the living and the dead. The kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 48, O Lord Most High, with all my heart.
The scripture gives us great promises regarding the Lord's Supper. But one of those is just simply that the Lord is the one who uh, is the living bread and who feeds us. And as we eat his body and his blood, we are fed and our faith is strengthened. And we're able to live in this world that is full of dangerous, hybrid kinds of animals. As the disciples were coming to the Lord's table, the Lord broke the bread and gave it to them and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as we drink this cup and break this bread, we are celebrating Christ's body and blood given for us, and we are being nourished and, and strengthened by His grace. This meal is open to all those who have profess their faith publicly in Jesus Christ, who have um, repented of their sin, who are who belong to a Christian church and have been baptized. If that's not the case for you, you should stay back until such time that you are publicly joined with Christ's people, visibly joined with Christ's people in those three ways. We're glad you're here, and we look forward to partaking with you, um, if that is the case, if you need to be set right with Christ's church. This is the good news of the gospel that is set before us. We shouldn't think of it as just merely a meal that we partake of together, but the Holy Spirit is present and the meal is set before us in a visible, the gospel is set before us in a visible way. The, the body and the blood, the, the, the cup and the, the bread being set before us, indicating Christ's body and blood. That right there is presenting to us the gospel of how our sins are forgiven and how we are healed of our sin to follow Jesus Christ to be reconciled with God. Please join with me in giving thanks to God for our new life and salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is indeed right and good always and everywhere to give you thanks, Almighty and most merciful God. You made the world. You love your creation. You do not want to see your creation wrecked by sin and rebellion against you. It has no life apart from you. And so you continue to love your creation as you have not let it be annihilated. We give your, you gave your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And his dying and rising set us free from sin and death. And so we gladly thank you with the communion of saints, all those who've gone before us, all those who are on earth now who follow Christ. We give thanks with them and all the hosts in heaven, praising you, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. We praise and bless you, loving Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, and we obey his command by your Holy Spirit. May our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup be for us a communion in the body and blood of your dear Son. Father, we thank, uh, we remember all that Jesus did, his incarnation, his service here on earth, his death, rising to new life, ascending to your right hand, and sending the Holy Spirit to us. In him we plead with confidence his sacrifice made once and for all upon the cross. With the bread of life and the cup of your salvation, we proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes in glory. 
Praise to you, Lord Jesus. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. You are the Lord of all life. Help us to work together to bear witness to that day when your kingdom is fully consummated in this world and justice and mercy are seen in all places on this earth. Look with favor on your people. Gather us in your loving arms and bring us with all your holy people to feast at your table in heaven. Through Christ and with Christ and in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory are yours, O loving Father, forever and ever. And we offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat, 
the bread that is set before you, remembering Christ's body given for you, receive it with faith and thanksgiving, and drink from the cup, and remember Christ's blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. All praise to you, O God, our Father, for you have fed us with the bread of heaven. You've quenched our thirst from the true vine. Hear our prayer that being grafted into Christ, we may grow together in unity and be of service for the world and feast with Christ in his kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 159, O Savior, Precious Savior.
reign with him in glory. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. I'll bring your attention to some of the items in the bulletin, beginning with uh, Christian Education Hour today, which will um, involve a presentation by Amy about the Celebrate Recovery uh, group that we hope to get started here um, at Providence. Next week, we'll return to the gentle and lowly Lessons, I believe, will be on chapters uh, 15 and 16 for next week. Thursday night Bible studies on break uh, until September. The women's prayer meeting would be this Thursday morning at the Roberts home. And then Friday evening prayer meets on the 21st at the Hannams' house. Finally, uh, this Friday, this coming Friday, will be one of the Fridays designated for um, folks from our church and I think um, some fellows from Oakland Hills to go um, to the prison to preach the gospel. So that's this Friday. And that is all I have. Is there anything else? Uh, Linda? Okay. Linda will send out an email about the possibility of uh, Saturday the 29th for a, uh, a bush trimming session, cleaning up the, the grounds a bit. Okay. That is all.